Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, this is Jackie Russo, and you know, it's not a live show if we don't have a technical glitch. So I'm really glad we got that out of the way in the very first 30 seconds. So now we're insured a good hour-long run of no technical glitches. You know, Michael Russo is an amazing husband, father, and business partner, and a sometimes good producer of live podcasts. So we have now found the one thing he doesn't do perfectly well all the time. Uh, So thank you all for joining us. I appreciate everybody tuning in on this great Friday afternoon um, about to be here in Louisiana, but morning there in Seattle. Um, Joining us today, which this is a big moment. I just want everybody to realize usually all of our guests have been kind of contained into the Acadiana, Louisiana area. So it's been very Southern based, but we are geographically spreading our wings. We're heading all the way to the great Northwest um, and joining us Live from Seattle is Andrea Houston, who is going to talk to us about conferences, pandemic pivots, and her agency, Artitudes Design. Welcome. Thanks, Jackie. I'm excited to be here today, and happy almost afternoon down there. Thank you very uh, much. We are definitely only at 9.30 in the morning, and I have my coffee to prove it. So. As you should. I'll be sharing it with water. And so we've got our beverages, and uh, I think they are uh, day of time appropriate for where we are in location. So I have so many questions about what you have done as an agency, the pivots y'all have gone through, what life in Seattle has been like. Uh, I'm just fascinated by everything right now. So maybe we just start with kind of a little bit of background on you and the agency and how y'all came to be, and then we can talk about what this year has been like for you. All right. Well, I own Artitude's Design. Uh, as of August 4th, it will be 25 years old. I started with a yeah a $5,000 loan from my grandmother to buy a Macintosh computer and business cards. Exciting stuff. <laughs> so we started as Artitude's Layout Design. I had been working at an engineering firm in the Seattle area and I got laid off. And I was running the creative services department at the time. And they were purchased by a French firm, a big French company. So I had seven employees on my team and they called me and they said, can you please lay off your team? This is what this is happening. And I was 24 years old. So I was like, "Mm, I'm 24. I'm going to lay off an entire team of people, most of who are older than me. So I did that and I was only 24 and so not fairly clever at that point. And I came in the next day and they laid me off. And I went, oh, I did not see that coming. So I had been at home getting my ducks in an order. And two days later, they called me and they said, we were short-sighted. We need to do an entire brand change uh, because the company out of France that bought us wants us to be this other company now. So we need you to come back and bring one of your team members. And I said, hold, please. And I drove myself down to Olympia, which is um, our capital. And I got myself a business license because you couldn't do that online back then. So I came back and I called them the next day and I said, sure, I'll come back and I'll bring Sandy with me, but you're going to pay me through Artitude's Layout and Design. And that's how we were born. That is awesome. And I cannot believe that's been 25 (laughs) years. What an amazing time this has been because we're 20 years old. And so you've gone through those same challenges we've gone through, whether it was watching everything shut down in 9-11, going through the Great Recession of 08, um, the advent of social media and how much that has changed our business. Uh, So do you feel like what we're going through this year is actually the biggest of all of the challenges of the past 25 years? So it's hard for me to answer that question, honestly, because I've had some personal challenges in there that have really, really uh, changed the face of my business as well. Uh, But I would say living through 9-11 was very interesting because at the time I had an infant son who was two months old when that happened, as well as I was running a business. I had a six month old, so I feel you. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they're now 19. It's crazy. It's just college freshman. Yeah, it's crazy. Time flies, doesn't it? (laughs) It sure does. Uh, But that was a really fascinating time because getting my feet back under me uh, with a brand new baby, but also with a company and the world, well, the U.S. was changing 
uh, massively at the time. And then the financial crisis where I actually had to roll back and lay some people off. I'd never had to do that before. And it freaked me out. Um, I like to be the boss that everybody liked at the time. Um, I'm a little different now, but <laughs> in there, I also was in a coma for 19 days. Talk to me so a little bit June about that because I haven't had that experience. So what the heck? <laughs> well, I'm pretty open about the whole experience now, but in September of 2007, I had an elective surgery uh, to put a lap band in. And I then had some other issues, female health issues in the brand new year 2008 that caused me to have two laparoscopic surgeries. Uh, the second one resulting in a full hysterectomy. And what they do with laparoscopic surgeries is they blow your inside gases so that they can do the work, you know, get things done. What they didn't know at the time is that tightens the lap band because the lap band was fairly new. So um, I had done this elective surgery on my own uh, and we had no idea what was happening, but by the end, a month later, I was throwing up every three minutes. And so my husband ended up taking me to three different hospitals before we could get a clear diagnosis, even though I was very clear about what I thought was going on. Uh, and by the time that happened, it was over a three day period, I was already aspirating. So they got me up in a, an ambulance to a surgical hospital north of Seattle. And I spoke to the surgeon in the middle of the night and that's all I remember for 19 days. So I aspirated on the operating table and I got something called ADS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. And it turns your lungs to stone. And at the time it was a 70% fatality rate. Uh, so yeah, there's a whole story behind it. They prepared my husband for my death three times. Uh, my kids came in to say goodbye. Uh, there was just a lot, but um, I, came out of that coma. And the first thing I said to my husband is, do you have my cell phone? And he sat down. On the, you know, he sat down on the chair next to the bed and started to cry. I'm like, what? What's going on? What's wrong? Uh, and I was clearly not as coherent saying that I am. But in my mind, I had just gone to sleep and woken up the next day. Sure. So it was a long road to pull myself out of that. Uh, I mean, I spent the next month in a wheelchair. I spent month and a half, two months after that with a walker. I didn't return fully to my business till the next February. I just couldn't, I couldn't stay awake more than two to three hours at a time. So it took a lot out of me and it was a long road back. Um, and the, the sidebar to that is it was before we had um, universal healthcare. And so um, while insurance had paid it, they rejected it. So I'm still paying on that coma from 12 years ago. It was a wow. million dollars at the time. We're down to 80,000. So it's good. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. So it changed my business too because I came back and I I still had a business. Well, now we didn't lose money that year. We didn't make a lot of money that year. We were in the single digit percentages, but we were still in business. And so when I came back, I took a really hard look at the company and what I did. And before I was in a coma, I touched 80 to 85% of every project that came in, I knew what was going on. I was a control freak and a micromanager. Uh, and after that, I could step back and let people do their jobs. And for the most part, I'm pretty good about that. <laughs> so what a testament to the relationship that you and the agency had with your clients that they sustained with you for a year when you weren't at 100%. That's I think so, but it's also it's also a testament to the staff in place, and still do. Many of them are still with me twelve years later. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, I have a good team. I, I, so many questions. Um, in, in a lot of ways, the way you've described <laughs> what you went through sounds like what so many COVID patients are going through with the clots in their lungs, their inability to breathe. I mean, the seriousness of your situations, I think, parallel each other quite a bit. So Jackie, a lot of people who've been dying of COVID are dying of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, so yes, in fact, when COVID was really, really hitting the airwaves and everybody knew what was going on, they did a lot of specials about it. And I honestly had to tune it out. I had to walk out of the room a couple of times when it was on TV. And I didn't realize that I still had PTSD over this. It, it took that and that information coming to the forefront again for me to say, wait a minute, I thought I was completely over this, but it's part of me forever. 
So yeah, it is exactly what's happening. And I was intubated. I have nine scars across my torso. I have a main line and a pick line. So I have scars everywhere. Uh, and it was because I was intubated for so long. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's again, what we keep hearing with the COVID patients, you know, they're on their bellies, intubated, trying to keep that from settling into their lungs. And so I, you were just 12 years ahead of your time for what we're all going <laughs> through right now. Very sadly, um, I'm, I'm heartbroken for the people who are dealing with this now because I know firsthand how horrible it can be. Right, right. And it's, you know what? It's so awful to be on a ventilator. It's, and it's not anything that you ever really get past. Uh, when I went to my first uh, physical therapy appointment after I was out of the hospital, my physical therapist said, where's your oxygen tank? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, I've never met someone who has survived ARDS that doesn't have an oxygen tank. I was her first. Wow. wow. And so if you had to make a choice between all of that or wearing a mask, is it a tough decision for you? <laughs> um, because I hear a lot of people who oh. are very mask resistant. So really, I wear a mask to protect myself, but to also protect other people. Sure. And I'd rather wear a mask than a ventilator. I would tell you that a thousand percent. I would much rather have a cloth mask or, or a filtered mask on my face than going through intubation again. It yeah. is invasive and you never get over it. Right. We have a really good friend, um, family friends who have... Uh, three kids who've all been positive, uh, two boys who've been in the ICU, uh, one has recovered in his home, and the other is still fighting for his life in the ICU right now, a 19-year-old. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, that's horrifying. Right? Right. Uh, my, prayers, my prayers and my thoughts are with the people who are dealing with this right now, uh, and also my voice. So I'm one of those people who I'm not very divisive as a general rule. I keep my political stances to myself, generally speaking, because, you know, there are people who believe different ways and that's okay with me. Sure. However, when it comes to the mask thing, it's not political, it's health. And it's about respect for your fellow humans. It has nothing to do with politics. It really has to do with health. And it, it doesn't hurt anything. So just mask up and move on. Exactly. I have about... 15 different masks right now because I can mix them up with my outfits. Not that I go out very often. Uh, when this first hit, my husband was like, we are quarantining. You're going nowhere because I've been in that position before. I don't want to ever be there again. So we're actually quarantining on the coast of Washington at our, our cabin on the beach. Perfect. So it's about two and a half hours from Perfect. Seattle. But Seattle was the epicenter when this started. It was huge. And so I got out of town as soon as I could. Yeah, there's a lot of things about Seattle that I want to talk about. Um, so let's start with Seattle became two cities, right? One little city within one big city for a little while. Um, we saw a lot yeah. on the news. And I know when, for example, when Katrina hit, what it was like to live here and then to see here on the national news. And they weren't always exactly the same thing. So from what yeah. we saw and heard on the national news, what was it actually like in reality in Seattle for y'all? For COVID? Yeah. Or well, for, for the Black Lives Matter? I mean, no, I'm, I'm going all the way back chop. to CHOP. Let's start with okay. Seattle being the epicenter, then there being the protests on Capitol Hill. Uh, just take, take me through all of it. You know, I think it's all related to some degree. And I'm sitting here as a white woman, so I do not have the experience of a person of color. However, I fully support Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. Because if one voice is not being heard, then all voices can't be heard. Uh, however, with CHOP in particular, I think it was a perfect storm. After being quarantined and under these very heavy restrictions for so long, there was an opportunity for people to push through and get out and, and make a statement. And so Capitol Hill Occupation Project, or I can't remember exactly what it stands for, my VP of Creative Services lives a block away. And it was fine. In fact, I have friends who went up there. It was fine until the last week. But I have friends who went up there and it was almost like a street fair where you could get food and, and art and talk to people. And most people were wearing, wearing masks at the time. It was not tires burning and guns going off and, and graffiti. Now, most of those shops had already been boarded up because of COVID. So when they shut the city down, a lot of shops boarded up. Because they went, we're not going to be here. We don't want people to break in. So 
when they showed some of the stuff on the national news, in fact, I even had a call from a friend of mine in Europe saying, what's going on over there? And I said, okay, we're fine. It's okay. <laughs> but it was very sensationalized, very much so. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. Um, that tends to happen sometimes with the national media. You know, they're looking for some clickbait stories. Um, and so your coworker who lives a block away, um, has it kind of all gotten back to some sense of a new normal now? What is she talking about what it feels like these days? So he said it just feels like Capitol Hill. So Capitol Hill, uh, as we were talking with your husband, Michael, before we went live, he used to live in Seattle. And Seattle's built about of around smaller areas. So there's Ballard, there's Queen Anne, there's Capitol Hill, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of them. Uh, and so each one is almost a district into itself. And Capitol Hill has always been a little quirky. It's just who they are. It, in the beginning of our city, it was where all the mansions were, the huge mansions, because you had a view, you know, and as time moved on, uh, it became a university area with Seattle University. Uh, and then it became more of a quirky area for some people who felt like they didn't belong anywhere else. And now it's just kind of a fun, artistic part of the city. And so it's become that again. It really, and it never lost that. It really didn't. Right. That's amazing. Um, so now professionally, um, your agency does a lot of uh, conferences and events. That's kind of been one of the big things. And I know a big shift for y'all this year, your pandemic pivot has been um, taking these conferences and in-person events and turning them into virtual virtual projects. Walk me through that because that's fascinating with everyone relying on trade shows and conferences for sales and connection and business. Now that's going away. Y'all found a way through that. So what's that look and sound like? So, you know, we have always worked in the event space. I, I say always, but we pivoted 15 years ago to become more of who we are now because I had been a sole proprietor before then. And after um, I got in trouble because I had a 1099 employee who called me an employee. And so there was there were some issues there and I had to prove myself. And my lawyer said, why don't you incorporate? So that's when we started focusing on the event world. And really, we became known in the Seattle area for anything on the screen behind a speaker, be it one on one or one on 50,000. So we focused solely back then on the PowerPoint uh, and also Apple Keynote. So really anything that helped convey a message to influence an audience. And our busiest time of the year is always June and July every single year for the last 15 years because our large corporate clients do their events in July. So this year, uh, when COVID hit, those large Fortune 100 companies said, hey, we're not doing any live events for the rest of the year. Then we'll start to look at our strategy next January, which meant all those PO that I had open and all the work we were already underway with just dead stopped. So we lost 35 to 40% off the top Right, right away. And I was freaked out to say the least, but we've been through worse. So we just pick ourselves up, pull up our boots <laughs> and figure out what's next. And, you know, the live event world really has gone virtual quickly because people still want to reach other people. They still want the camaraderie. They want to be able to get the content across. They want to sell online. They want to have conversation with their clients and their employees and other people. So it was a real opportunity for us to say, how can we do this differently? Um, and we're, we've done a lot of um, online events already and virtual events, be it a webinar for two to 300 people to an online event that's for 12 to 1500 people. And we work with audiences all the way up to 50,000. So we're working on some of that now as well. But this one event that I'm in love with right now is for a national wine company that's based in Seattle. Well, east of Seattle. And they wanted to have an in-person event on June 24th. And when they called me, I said, it's not going to happen. <laughs> they called in April. I said, that's not going to happen. And the client said, our CEO really wants to do an in-person event. Let's show them what that could be first. So I created a proposal for that. But I said as well, you know what? We need to have a second plan. And I think it's got to be something totally different. So what we ended up doing is he did a town hall on June 24th for just a half an hour to speak to the 1,200 or so people we wanted to talk to. And then from then until probably mid-August, we're rolling out snackable content. So they're videos. 
and they're they're supposed to be three to five minutes. We had one that was ten minutes, but you know, they're little videos. Yeah, exactly. That their uh, audience can watch, and we have a full campaign around it as well. And it's really, really working because now they have all this evergreen content as well that they can keep. So it's been really good. It's been really fun to stretch us creatively. Uh, but also to give the clients something that they can really, really use. And now we're working on yet another event for them that's really going to be uh, in studio as well. So it'll be virtual. Uh, but there are things you have to do for a virtual event that you don't do for a live person event. Like for a live person event, yeah, <laughs> for a live person event, uh, you have an hour-long keynote. And granted, I think people hate hour-long keynotes in reality. But in a virtual event, they can just go, hmm, I'm going to go pick up my phone or I'm going to turn my camera off for a minute and go get you know, a piece of pie or I'm going to check my social media or answer some emails. And so you're not really capturing and engaging the audience. So we have some specific things we recommend around that. And it is, again, that term snackable content. So they say people online have a 25 to 30 minute attention span unless you break it up. So we like to say 12 and a half minutes. So after 12 and a half minutes, do something else. So take questions from the audience, engage them in some way. Uh, one of the things we're doing is we're doing drops of packages for another client. So we're pairing up what they're doing for their audience and the content with a swag box of things that match the conversation. So they can be part of it and it can be interactive. There's a company out of Chicago. Yeah, there's a company out of Chicago doing these things called Box Experiences. So their experience is in a box. And it's boxperience.com, I believe. But they're incredible. They're branded and they're very, very personalized. And you can open the box up and it's an entire experience and it can match your content. That's amazing. Yeah, it's very cool. So as you start to think about um, the advantages of virtual events to in-person, Obviously, you've got to make some pretty big uh, changes to how the whole system works. But I would think that one of the biggest advantages, rather than reaching a very small percent of an audience on a trade show floor, you now have the potential to reach everybody that was going to be attending that conference. You do. You do. So I'm actually going to be an attendee to a conference next week. And it's for the Women Presidents Organization, or WPO. Uh, and... It's their annual conference, which they've always had in person. And the only way you could get content was to wait until afterwards if you weren't an attendee because they would have video content for you. But now every single session is virtual, but also live. Uh, and they're sending us a gift and, and they're just trying to engage us in different ways. So it's all about the marketing campaign around it first to get us in to see the speakers that we want to see. But it's also about keeping people engaged. And they know that because if you can't engage your audience, no matter how many people you can reach, you're still not going to reach them. The one interesting thing I have found with virtual events, and there's an article about it that I was reading this morning before I got out of bed, because that's what I do. <laughs> it's about missing the wow factor and missing the memories that are created with in-person. And there's something to be said for not being I mean, we're face to face right now, but not being able to interact in a very personal and live way. Uh, and it's really going to be about the companies and the people and anyone who can put some mind share into this to really figure out how to bridge that gap. And I think we're working towards it and doing a good job at it. But there's a lot left to do. So true. So true. One of the things that I think makes an in-person event uh, so cool is actually walking the trade show floor. You know, it's a trade show, not just a conference. And seeing the exhibitors, how does the exhibitor still get that experience of being able to have somebody visit their booth? So I would say they don't. So from what I've seen, it's entirely different now. So um, I've seen some lead people to a portal. So you go online and, and you take the information. It's very much a pull, not a push. Uh, because if people are pushed at, they resist and they walk away. But if you can get you know that line, that fishing hook to grab somebody and they can go to that room or to that portal, there is an experience that can be had. Now, I've seen it done both with a live person in the portal. 
Uh, and we do those with breakout rooms in some of the larger conferences. Uh, so for larger conferences, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of software out there available to create an event that doesn't feel like a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting or something like that. Instead, there's like Evia is one that I love, On24 is one, and Bizabo is another one that we use a lot where you can skin it and create a custom experience so it doesn't look like it's the software. It looks like your company. People can go to breakout rooms and they can go to a show floor. So they can really go and say, I want to check out this one and this one, but it's up to the user now. It's not up to the company. That's awesome. And then if you partner that with the company you mentioned in Chicago that does the swag boxes, you can still get your promo items out there and it's a win-win for everybody. Exactly. I love that. People like free stuff. They really do. They don't like junk, mind you. I think it's really bit about curating the right things and, and making sure that it's something the client will want to use or the customer will want to use rather than a keychain or a pen or something like you could pick up on a trade show floor. This has to be more curated and higher level. So Otherwise, it's, it's just a bunch of junk. Right. So it just becomes quality over quantity. You're going to give out less, but the, what you're giving is going to be more impactful. It's going to be more valuable. It's just going to be better received. Yep. So yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Um, so walk me through as you've made these transitions for all the different virtual events that y'all are working on, what have you found um, to still be the challenging mindsets? Where are the, the, the clients still resistant and just not able to quite make that transition? Uh, there's so much. <laughs> Clients like doing live events. Yes, they're a lot of work, but there is an energy about a live event that is inescapable. And what I'm talking about is for the crew backstage or for the people putting it on. And really it's about, it's almost like a drug. I hate saying that, but it's almost, you get at a high from the energy that's there. And so when we're creating an event that's not a live event, it's really hard to replicate that. And it's hard for the client too, because a lot of the event planners or the people who run large show floors for some of these Fortune 100 companies, where 50,000 people come to the event, it is so difficult for a speaker or a person who's organizing to feel the energy in the room because it just doesn't exist. So it's, it's kind of like when you're having a speech online that you need to look at the camera the whole time. So it looks like you're looking at people. But if I'm looking at the camera right now, I'm not looking at you. And it's hard because you're not getting that feedback live and in person and real time. So, so there's some resistance. Yeah. There's some resistance still just because of the culture part that's missing. And I would call it culture. There's a culture to live events. Uh, and those of us who've done them for many, many moons really miss them. In fact, there's a lot of support groups out there right now for live event professionals. I'm a part of a couple of them. <laughs> that is awesome. It's about, yeah, but it's about changing the story and changing the way we reach our customer or client base. Uh, and I think it's only going to get better because it has to. And I do think we're seeing the face of change in the live event world. While we may go back having some I don't think they'll ever be like they were before. What I can envision is perhaps a keynote in one city and then satellite events in other cities. So they're smaller and people can get to them more easily. Travel is going to be on the back burner for many moons, I believe. Uh, and gathering that many people in one place right now is just not an intelligent solution. Right. What do you do for um, your partners that you've worked with all these years that have the equipment, um, the rigging, the staging, you know, the event producers, the physical stuff. How yeah. have you advised them to recover um, or transition when they don't have anybody to rent their stuff to right now? So I would say we don't advise anybody. I would say we have conversations with people and really talk about solutions. So there's, we partner with a number of different production companies up here in the Seattle area, and we've worked with production companies all over the world for live events. And it's been hard for them, really hard. I know a number of companies that lost 90% of their top line in three weeks period of time uh, in March. 
And that was brutal for them. There were layoffs and furloughs and, and everything else that you can imagine. But by pivoting to the virtual event space, like I said, there's this uh, event coming up in August where we're doing it in studio. So we're using a lot of that equipment in a studio. Now it's gonna be socially distanced and there's only a certain amount of people allowed at one time. So it's gonna be different, but we're gonna be able to replicate a bit of that feel. And we've done that before as well. And it's fun. It's fun for the speaker too. Although some of them get camera fright. They get a little bit frozen in front of the camera because they're not used to that. And I do agree. It's different. And there are companies who've run their businesses for years off of live events. I have a friend who owns a logistics company. He moves stuff around the world for events. And it's been super hard. And he told me yesterday, he goes, we are just in startup mode. We're trying to figure out any way we can add value to anything at all with our equipment and our people and our processes. So I think it's also making people more creative. At least it is some of the production companies that we're working with. And I think, you know, we're all going to survive, but it's going to look different. A lot different. Um, just transitioning a little bit because you're talking about how everyone's kind of, you know, making those shifts and the energy, I think, that comes around that. I had the opportunity to be a guest on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, so I appreciate you returning the favor and doing this one today. Um, as a woman in business who interviews other women for the Lead Like a Woman podcast, <laughs> um, do you see some dynamic shifts in how women are responding to this versus men? Oh, that's a very good question, Jackie. So I'm not sure I can say the versus men versus women, but I can tell you how women are responding since that's really the audience in my group that I'm talking to. Man, we are innovative. We are just thinking creatively and going, all right, this worked before. It's not working now. What works now? How do I get to my customer, to my client, to my constituents in a way that is creative, um, valuable, and impactful? And that comes everywhere from, I interviewed Erin Branch, who owns a lash uh, brand in New York City. So she does lashes and, and other things that make women feel beautiful. So it's it's important to her and it's important to the women that she works with. But she had a salon, or a few of them that she had to shut down. So she started taking the tact of creating things, creating content for women. And that's been super valuable. Uh, there's a company out of Seattle called The Table Less Traveled. And it is a tour operator. They curate custom trips all over the world that have to do with food. So you'd go to Italy and you'd stay in a small villa and you'd go to a chef's apartment for dinner and they would cook something custom for you. And it's all over the world. So Italy and Peru and Japan and Malaysia and other places where they go, her whole business cut off the entire thing. There was no travel. So you know what she did? Some, one of the most creative individuals I know, Annie Cheng, uh, she created an online cooking class. So what happens now is you go to her website, you select a class, you pay. Now it's anywhere from 20 bucks to 150 bucks. You get to choose how much you can afford. And then you have a class, a live Zoom class, and they do a really good job of it. They do a good job integrating every person in the class. I've been in one of the classes and my chef or the chefs are in another country teaching. So the one that I had my team do, we went to an online cooking class live in Italy. Uh, it was in Naples and they taught us how to make these Italian cookies. But she's doing one this weekend for the Japanese pancakes that I love, Okonomoyaki, and the chef is in Japan. So you sign up and so whatever you pay, exactly half of it goes to the chef in this other country because she's helping them sustain as well. So the women are creative. Women are coming up with ideas to connect people. I think that's really what it's about is about connections. How can we connect people together in a different way in this time of COVID? Now, I don't know what men are doing necessarily because I haven't interviewed them. And I think that's probably a gap in my knowledge that I need to fill. But really, women that I'm interviewing and talking to, massive creativity is coming out of them. I love seeing it. I do too. And um, the clients that we have that have made the biggest pandemic pivots and shifts 
have all been women. And it's all the same stories, just like what you're talking about. Um, say the, uh, the name of the chef website, because I want Michael to put it up on the screen so that anybody can go sign up for that. It's the tablelesstraveled.com. Okay. That is amazing. The other, yeah. Well, the other pivot, and I wanted to talk about this one briefly, if you don't mind. Please. Uh, is that one I was talking about earlier, Boxperian. So the CEO, Andrea Herrera, is in Chicago, and she has run a custom catering business for 25 years called Amazing Edibles. Well, all of a sudden, her business was shut down. There was nothing she could do. So she tells the story really well, but she sent a text out to a list of people who were business advisors and friends and other CEOs and said, help me. I need help figuring what, what to do to pivot. And... People came up with ideas for her and they came up with this idea of a box experience, an experience in a box. And so she pulled it out and she's created this amazing process and project now that people are buying. So I think women really are looking at what's before them and saying, hey, what are we good at? What's my team really good at? And what can we do now? Absolutely. So we got connected because we both were in the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business classes, different years, different classes, but you know, same program. So I was on a a call earlier, um, which is why I was late getting backstage for this. I apologize again um, with the uh, Edward Lowe Foundation, um, who puts on so many of the economic gardening and SIG groups across the country and works with state economic development offices. I'm one of their brand consultants. And what's cool. interesting to me, yeah, it's really amazing, but we were talking about um, the work they've been doing to help companies shift, which is really what this whole podcast was born out of, is I am fascinated by the changes people are going through to adapt to these times. So bring all those examples. I want to hear them all because I love this stuff. It's amazing <laughs> to me. I think it is too. Right? I mean, it, it, it's a time in our lives where it's all on the table. And so you can't do the thing you've been doing for 25 years. That really sucks a lot. So what are you going to do? Yeah. So how can we create value for people? How can we create value for ourselves? Uh, Being creative and thinking completely differently. I hate saying you think outside of the box because it means you were in a box in the first place, but really thinking differently and creatively to do something that adds value. Right. Absolutely. So what other um, either interviews you've done or clients you've worked with, do you feel like they've made a pandemic pivot worth giving a shout out to? Oh, geez, there are so many of them. I had two interviews this week that were really outstanding. Uh, And one of them was Annie Chang, who I also knew ahead of time. But the other one was Ellen Tenney Wines. And so her their podcast won't be out for a while. But Ellen Tenney is a logistics company that moves wine and spirits around the world. And they've had a hard time, too. That's because they can't move things around the world right now. It's really hard to do. So she's doing some other things as well, but nothing that's really public, but things about education and and a way to show knowledge uh, for free. It's almost like free content, but it, it gets you to be known as an expert in your field. Uh, and another good one, sorry, is Deb Gabor. She has a company, well, she has a book, first of all. Her website is debgabor.com, T-A-B-O-R. But she has a book that came out called Branding is Sex. That's pretty cool, huh? That's a clever title. (laughs) But she is in the same space you guys are. And what she has done is really just put content out. And in the time of COVID, we're going to call it, Uh, she has gone from having a mailing list of maybe 1,500 to 12,000 people, of people who are interested. So it doesn't mean everyone's buying, but her audience got way, way bigger. Right, right. Really important. If you're giving away branding and sex, that's a really good thing to pick up an audience because both of those are high on most people's lists for sure. Um, That's true. You brought up education. What is that looking like in Seattle? Or at least what are people expecting it's going to look like this school year? Has your school system started to talk about that yet? Here's a tough conversation, Jackie. (laughs) You know, it's why has education become political too? I don't understand that one, but I'm not going to go there necessarily. My son is going to be 16 in a month. So he will be a summer this year in high school. 
Uh, so his freshman year was interrupted midstream. And he had a hard time with online schooling. And it's he's a very intelligent child. He's a really good student. But he was the kid who would get to class. He would take his notes, do his stuff, and then they'd do all his homework right then while the teacher was talking. So he was always an A student, but everything was always done. So pivot to online learning, and he's not doing his work. He'd rather be playing on his Xbox or, you know, playing with the dogs or talking with his friends or sleeping. He's a teenager. He likes to sleep a lot and eat. My God. Teenage boys eat a lot. So I have one. I know. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but he wasn't getting his work done. So fast forward to this September uh, and what's going to happen or August in parts of the country. In the Seattle area, the Seattle Teachers Union just came back and said they're not comfortable teaching right now so all up and down the west coast la has changed to an online model only virtual only san diego has uh portland oregon just did it i think seattle's probably next our school district just sent out a survey asking parents if they want either remote learning only or a hybrid model of two days a week in class and then three days a week at home and the two days a week in class will be half the amount of children so monday wednesday would be last names at A to K, and then it would go the other way on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, so I actually selected virtual only, and I know my son would like to be back in class, but my belief is of our teachers in the Seattle area, over 30% of them are 16 older. So you bring somebody into the classroom who's already high risk, Kids have generally been shown, some of them get very ill, like your friend has had three children very ill. Some of them don't. But one teacher is exposed, she exposes 150 kids, at least. All those kids go home, they expose their families, friends of their families, and everybody else. And then we have a spike in the pandemic. And personally and selfishly, I need to stay away from it because of my lungs. So I lost capacity in both my lungs when I was ill. Now I'm healthier than I've ever been but I still have that propensity to get sick. So my poor child is gonna suffer for it in education, but I also think it's wake of it. So he's gonna be on a schedule, you're getting up at a certain time, you're eating at a certain time, you're getting on your schoolwork, and then you can go play Xbox or sleep, I don't care. Right, well, I think that was the big problem when we kind of abandoned ship halfway through the year. We shut down March 15th, when did y'all shut down? I believe the same time. Okay. Oh, no, I felt like y'all were ahead of us. It was a week before you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was a week before you, I think. Yeah, because it seems like Seattle really became the first epicenter, New York, and then New Orleans oh, yeah. was right off of that. And so Louisiana yeah. as a whole just kind of followed what New Orleans did uh, to some degree. So, you know, when we abandoned ship mid-March, uh, it really was like uh, no one had a plan in place for it. Now, I feel like... People are going to say, okay, well, this is how we're going to do Zoom classes. This is how we're going to do online testing. This is what we're going to do to make sure people still learn. Because what yeah. was discovered in our school district pretty quickly uh, was that 28% of the students did not have internet in the home other than one smartphone. And maybe 40%, I'm, I'm not sure about that number exactly, did not have a personal electronic device other than a smartphone. Right. And it has to be equitable for education. And that's one of the things we're seeing. I agree with you. In fact, it was almost six weeks before my child had any learning whatsoever. And at the time I had a senior as well. So my senior was struggling to get through. And this was a hard year to be a senior in high school because it's kind of a, you know, it's an exit from something, but also an entrance to the world. And so there's, there's some fanfare that goes along with it and celebrations that he didn't get to have. In fact, graduation was so strange, but my kid graduated. So I'm really happy. <laughs> um, and then did you get to have, are you already done college tours? So were y'all already prepared for what's coming in the fall or is that just kind of in limbo? So it's kind of in limbo for us. Aiden, my oldest, has had a lot of learning disabilities over the years. And there's some things that he has to tackle before he can be a really good student, which is why I said I'm just happy he graduated. Right. Uh, but yeah, we're looking at a number of different options for him. Uh, trade school is one of them that he's very interested in. But everything got put on hold. Even the tours we were doing got put on hold. So we'll see what happens in the next month or so as things may start to open up in a different way. 
but he may take a quarter off. He may have to right now. Sure. Say, I mean, it's hard to start something new when you're starting virtually. Right. Well, and there's a lot of benefit, I think, to a gap quarter, gap year, gap semester, whatever it might be, uh, because it yeah. gives everybody a chance to kind of reset and figure out what the next best path is. I don't think anybody should head straight into a four year um, unless they need the degree for their next job. And, right. you know, uh, we have yeah. a lot of trade school success in our area, and I'm a big fan of that plan. So I think there's a lot of benefit. Me too. There. Yeah. Me um, too. So I have a rising junior and a rising senior. Um, and so you have now just a graduating, um, just graduated senior and rising sophomore. So sophomore. when yep. sophomore, right? Okay. So when you think about the seniors, the the kids who just graduated in the midst of everything that your son just graduated in, what advice do you give to them moving forward about the things that they didn't get to have? You know, those milestones that they lost out on, and maybe the opportunities that kind of exist before them instead. So I don't really look at it as missing out on anything. These children were born during 9-11. I mean, <laughs> they started their lives during a huge crisis in America. And they are, you know, starting the next phase of their lives during a huge crisis in America. So I think these kind of things imprint on them and will help make them who they are. For sure, my sons, uh, because... They, they have a resiliency about them that is part of their DNA now. It really is baked into who they are because of it, the experiences that they've had. I, I believe we're going to see a whole generation of innovators here. Kids that are people, excuse me, as they get older. My 19-year-old doesn't like to be called a kid anymore. He'll always be my baby. But <laughs> uh, I think the young adults are going to be able to look at things creatively and solve more problems for us than any other generation has because they have a different lens for which to see the world. So the opportunities are immense. I'm with you. I don't necessarily think a four-year degree is necessary for every student and every person. And I used to think so. So I came from a world where it was absolutely necessary. But I think there are things that people can do that don't require a high level of book education. Rather, it requires a different kind of education. And the opportunities abound right now. There's there's a lot of space out there to be creative, but a lot of space in which to grab something and make it yours. Case in point, we had somebody come service our fireplace. Strangely enough, our gas fireplace. He doesn't have an apprentice. No one's ever wanted to do it. So he's over 60. He's just going to shut his doors. And I said, you need to find an apprentice. Because here's a very valuable business that you have 30 years worth of clients, but people don't want to work with their hands necessarily. And we need to really, really show that that's okay, that it's a good idea to do so. Mike Rowe, who does dirty jobs and the, those kind of shows, I've met him personally. He has a scholarship out there for kids who are going into the trades. It's amazing. He'll fully fund a trade education because he believes in it. And that's exactly what I think we need. If we don't have plumbers and electricians and AC repair people and gas furnace repair people, um, I don't know how to do any of those things. So we're screwed. No, me neither. I am the last person you want to be stuck in a pandemic with because I can't fix anything. <laughs> well, I was okay because I can cook, but I don't have anyone who can fix much either. I can't. I can't even do that. <laughs> Michael does all of our cooking. So... Um, I'm, oh, I'm hitched nice. to him Lucky. for life. Otherwise, I won't survive. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous, Jackie. <laughs> one of uh, one of my previous guests, because I always ask about the what advice do you give to the seniors, um, and she said something that I think is is similarly to what you said. She said, um, as as hard as it is, um, suffering, which this has been, gives us space for growth. And so yeah, when you have some it suffering, it's a good place to learn to grow. And I, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. That resiliency is a great quality. What other values uh, do you live by? So I fully believe in failing forward. You get knocked down seven times, you get up eight. And I tell my kids that too. Because really failure isn't failure. It's just a lesson to be learned and to move forward with. And if you're you fear failure so much, you won't ever move forward and be truly be who you're meant to be. So that's that's one of the things I say all the time is fail forward. Because if you fail backwards, you're never getting up again. And what a pity that is for both you and the entire world. I think we have this 
Yeah, we have the space right now for these students uh, and this generation to completely change the face of our world in terms of environment, in terms of racism, in terms of systemic issues that are there and we think are set in stone, but they don't have to be. These kids have the whole world in front of them. And I think it, they're going to be our creative problem solvers. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what historical event would you most like to have attended? Oh, geez, there's a question. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I oddly would have liked to be a fly on the wall and not as a woman, let me tell you, um, for Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King at his court, oddly Ooh. enough. I've always been fascinated with that time period in history, but I would not have wanted to be a woman in that time period in history because they were terribly objectified. So I would show up as a guy or I would show up as invisible so nobody could see me. So I could just really witness something I've always wanted to do. I always, I've also thought he was an amazing leader to some degree. The other one that I would be interested in is Ernest Shackleton with his incredible story in Antarctica and Every single man on that ship got out alive, even though they were stuck there for months and months on end in the ice. Again, I don't think I'd want the discomfort of it, but I'd love to be witness to his leadership. Right. Those are two great answers and answers I have not had yet. Um, speaking <laughs> of, of past kings, are you familiar with the Broadway show Six? No, I'm not. Okay, put it on your list. Um, okay. We were in New York. Actually, we went there for Mardi Gras break. So about two weeks before New York shut down. Wow. Right. Right. And flew through New Orleans. So I spent the first three weeks of all this thinking we're doomed because we've been in the two biggest oh, hotspots no. in the country. Um, but on a more important note, the show six is about the six wives of Henry VIII. And it's told from their perspective. It's her story versus history. And as if they have gotten together and formed a band that looks and sounds a little bit like the Spice Girls. Oh my gosh, I want to see that. It I've never really heard of it. Six. six. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Obviously, okay. their run has is paused for now. Um, hopefully, they re, um, re-emerge after all of this when Broadway reopens. Because the soundtrack is like Hamilton, just... Historical references, buzzy, gets in your head. Uh, I am a huge I fan. So uh, that is my tip for you today. Uh, what's your guilty awesome. pleasure? Oh, what's my guilty pleasure? Well, that implies I have to feel guilty. I don't have a lot of guilt around my pleasures. <laughs> I love dark chocolate. I love a good glass of red wine. Uh, my latest fun uh, thing to drink is a sparkling brute rosé. Uh, from Chateau Saint Michel, it's a uh, Saint Michel Domaine Brut Rosé. It's amazing. That's my favorite favorite pleasure. I'm not going to call it guilty um, <laughs> in the space of drinking. Um, I also, it's going to sound odd, but I walk ten miles a day, and so walking is my catharsis, and that's what I love to do the most. And that started after my illness and being super unhealthy. That was my way of taking back control of that. So if I don't get that. I get cranky. And actually, we had a joke in my office. If my assistant ever came in and said, you need to take a walk, it's because I was being bitchy. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love That's that. My you can't do that here. Uh, we're temps at about 98, 99 right now. And our feels like is 109. So Whoa. you stick to the Northwest for those 10 mile walks, or you have to do them inside <laughs> a mall in Louisiana right now, because we are in the seventh circle of hell at this time, temperature wise. Ooh. I'm sorry. I have a treadmill too. It helps on those days when I can't get it. Right. Cause you have some rain every once in a while. So you have to find an indoor Just solution. A little. Just a little bit. Just, Just a, a touch. Little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the rain might be the single um, greatest reason why I have four kids, a husband and a successful business right now, because if it hadn't rained so much, Michael would have stayed in Seattle um, and my whole uh -huh. life would have been different. So I am always appreciative of the Seattle rain. What is your pettiest pet peeve? My pettiest pet peeve? Oh, 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 it's grammar online. If you can't spell your and your correct, I don't want to be friends anymore. Two, two, and two, there and there. And oh, wait, one of my biggest, one of my biggest is an apostrophe S when it does not belong. Uh, somebody gave me a Christmas thing that said the Houstons, which with an apostrophe S, I had to throw it away 
It was lovely. I had to throw it away. I but could what not are you possessing? You're not possessing that. anything. You're plural. There's no possession there. Exactly. No comma to exactly. the top necessary. I'm with you. Oh, that one drives me crazy. All right. So before we get into our last card, which is the lightning round, what question do you wish <laughs> I had asked and what would the answer have been? Oh, Jackie, that one's hard for me. What question do I wish you would have asked? <sighs> I think I wish you would have asked not what my guilty pleasure is, but what I would rather be doing at any day or time. And I'd really rather be traveling. Um, I speak seven different languages, some of them fluently, some of them just to get by. And if I'm traveling, I'm happy. And I can't travel right now. <laughs> okay, I know that we are at this point barely acquaintances, but I need to know the steps it takes to move up on the list because the fact that you speak seven <laughs> languages, I've been to Italy three times, me and Google Translate, we've gotten by, but you have now just moved way up on the ranking of people I want to be best friends with at all times. That is amazing. You know, languages are... Languages are easy for me. I was an exchange student in high school. And before I went, I already spoke some French. Uh, but I was learned to be fluent in Danish. When I came back, I taught Danish. And then I also went to classes for Norwegian and Swedish. College, I took German and Spanish. And then I also learned Italian. And I speak some sign language, too. That is fascinating to me. This is why I love doing these interviews. It's so much fun to learn about <laughs> other people and their stories. Okay, lightning round. Last card. Favorite okay. place on earth. Ah, uh, this one's hard for me because I have a few favorite places on earth. Bring them. Uh, I will tell you my my current favorite place on earth is my beach cabin on the ocean uh, on the coast of Washington. We have a Cape Cod up on stilts and it is my peace and my home. My other favorite place on earth, because I'm going to give myself two because leaders challenge the process, uh, is Denmark. And really it's in the heart of a small town on the island of Fun, which is the middle island. So I lived in Aarup, which is A-A-R-U-P, a little tiny, they call it a Landsby, which is a farming community for almost a year. Uh, and my heart is still in Denmark. Whenever I fly into Copenhagen and we're getting into the, the city and landing, I start crying because it feels like I'm coming home. That is awesome. Um, what's a movie you can't turn off? Uh, I'm a cliche, but it's the movie Always. Um, it is an old movie with Richard Dreyfuss and Holly Hunter. Uh, and it is it is one of my guilty pleasures, you could say. Right now, though, it's Hamilton. Uh, so I've been to the live version of Hamilton, but now I've got it running on repeat on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> Absolutely. We've, we've seen it live twice, and it was even more fun to watch the movie when it came out. I mean, it's just, it's it is so remarkable. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I sing the songs all day yeah. long. My kids, are, I'm driving them crazy. Mom, you need stop. girls. See, that's the problem with boys. You need <laughs> girls because the girls sing it more than I do. So the girls are the way to go. <laughs> um, do you watch any TV? Is there any time for that? If so, what TV show do you binge watch? What's your favorite? Oh, I don't watch TV. Um, back in the years when I did watch TV, we don't even have cable here. I just don't. Sure. I don't do it. I like to read or play Scrabble computer at night. I'm total, I'm a total nerd. But back when I did watch a lot of TV, I watched a lot of the great British baking show, which I love. Uh, and Will and Grace. They've always been one of my favorites. Oh, that's a classic. And I probably have seen every episode of Friends, just so you know. Who hasn't? Uh, favorite book? Ah, <laughs> uh, man, there are a lot of favorite books. My favorite... A favorite book that I have that I've read at least three times, and it's on my list to read another, is The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. Um, when I first read it, I was struck by that book. I read it the second time back to back. So I read it, I've read it three times, and I'll be reading it again soon. That's my favorite. That is a great one. So other than your podcast and my podcast, what's your favorite podcast that you listen to? <laughs> Uh, yours, Jackie, really. Um, actually, you have a great, great thing going here. I appreciate it. Um, I had never listened to podcasts before other than Entree Leadership, which is one about entrepreneurial leadership. That's the only one I've listened to. That's a great one. And though. I do That's enjoy that suggestion. One. I like that yeah. one a lot. Yeah. Um, so last question. What is <laughs> your 
um, favorite way that you treat yourself? And I think I can answer for you at this point. It's got to be travel, right? It's travel or taking a walk. Yeah. Either one. If I can't travel, I'm out walking someplace. Yeah. The other thing I really am yeah. missing is getting my hair done and my nails done. <laughs> I miss self-pampering. <laughs> oh, we all do right now. I've managed to get one appointment in this whole year. Um, right when we started oh. phase one. And then um, I was like, okay, I can hold on for a few more months now. Because those roots were starting to look <laughs> a little different colored than the rest of the mop top. Oh, yeah. I think um, a lot of women can relate. Oh, all of us. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your brilliance. I cannot thank you enough for and what is the midst of a very hectic schedule with all the events you've got going on right now for carving out a little time for us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jackie. This was so much fun. And I love what you are doing down there with Brand Russo. Uh, I have referred people to you already and I'll continue to do so. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I love what you're doing up in Seattle. Um, and I cannot wait for us to move through this. Maybe 2021, we meet somewhere in the middle um, and get together because uh, I am looking forward to becoming one of your travel partners. Uh, so whatever Let's that takes. It. Yes. Um, and That's thank awesome. you to everybody who tuned in, listened, watched, sent questions. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, tune in next week. We will be talking to Jay Walker, the voice of the Ragin' Cajuns on his 35-year, 40-year radio career and what it was like to get two weeks into the pandemic and find out that he was no longer on the air and um, how he has transitioned to a podcast that is growing by leaps and bounds. And then just confirmed, the week following will be Justin Sylvester, uh, who grew up here in the Acadiana area and has made it big in Los Angeles, being on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and he now has a talk show on E! And so we cannot wait to talk to him and hear all about his experiences on the West Coast during this time. So thank you so much. Thank you to all of you. And uh, take care of each other, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.